Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hello, everybody. It's Jared, your host. This is another episode of All Things Crime. I'm excited this morning to bring in a special guest. But before I do, I just want to remind you to everybody subscribe and and hit the bell so you never miss an episode. And just want to say thanks to all of you viewers and listeners. And wow, just can't tell you thanks enough for all your support for the podcast. But this morning, I'm bringing in Dr. Scott Bond. He is a criminologist and a specialist in serial killing. He's also an author. He's got his own podcast. And I've been doing a bunch of research on him. And I'll tell you, uh, Scott, you have just a plethora of knowledge and information out there. Boy, you, your books, you know, The Serial Killer and or, or The Fatuation with this. I, I don't know the exact. I've got, I've got your whole. Why, uh, we, why we love serial killers. Yes. Why we love serial killer. I got your whole resume here and maybe I had to turn to it so I don't uh, screw this up too much here. So why we love serial killers, the curious appeal of the world's most savage murderers. And uh, boy, if that isn't a title that captures everybody's attention, I don't know what will. But I've also seen some of your latest articles, and we'll definitely get into that, you know, why the true crime audience is predominantly female and, and those kind of things. So just a fascinating discussion that I'm, I'm really looking forward to. So it's awesome to meet you. And I, I see you're in Las Vegas, my old stomping grounds from 20 years ago. And welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jared. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Excited to have a conversation about all things true crime. Absolutely. Boy, that's the topic of the of the season, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. It seems that everybody's, um, we always have plenty to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I was reading a newspaper article this morning about a guy that, and, and this has, this I, I think goes hand in hand with what we want to talk about today. But this guy up in Seattle, he's a felon. And I'm not sure what he was doing on the streets, to be honest, just walks up to a Tesla on the street and just opens fire. He had a he had a nine millimeter gun that he'd stolen and killed this lady who was 32 weeks pregnant, injured her husband, but just shot through the through the passenger side window and the windshield. And they said it was totally unprovoked. They have no idea why this guy did it. But I think that goes hand in hand with the psychosis that so many people have out there. And I know you're an expert on that. So uh, maybe we could start with that. What do you think would inspire somebody to just walk up and and shoot somebody? Well, I think this is part of what I've been observing for some time now, which is, you know, an uptick in these crimes of, of just anger and retaliation and frustration. The mass shootings, the terrible mass shootings, where we've seen just a tremendous uptick in over the last 10 years. And I think it has to do a lot with societal conditions that are prevailing in the United States now. I can't remember a time in my life, perhaps the 1960s, where the country was this divided along so many different lines. People are angry, they're frustrated, they feel powerless, 
alienated and in those type of conditions, some people strike out in rage and retaliation. And that's really what what mass murders are. You know, the pub, mass public shootings are perpetrated typically by a fatalistic individual who often wants to go out in some sort of a blaze of glory and make a statement and take out as many people as possible because they feel that the world has done them wrong in some way. That's the you know, that's a typical model of a mass shooter. And then at a more micro level, like you just described, an individual incident like that, also just smacks of anger, frustration, and wanting to you know hurt someone just uh, out of um, you know out of out of rage. And of course, that individual might also have pathological mental issues as well. But I think a lot of this is literally due to the social forces that are prevailing in our country right now. I mean, everyone's waiting for the next shoe to drop. What's going to happen next? And, and, and there's just so much angst out there. And in that kind of a, a social, political, cultural context, very bad things are going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's pretty insane the way there's so many people out there that I think have some sort of mental illness or instability, but then you, you compound that with the fact that social media, for example, and, and I think this Idaho shooter that, that killed those four students up there is a, is a good example. Koberger. He, um, my understanding at least is he was kind of shunned. He was, he was socially awkward. He was almost like stalking one of the victims. And she probably as a, as a social media influencer, but for the most part, just a young girl that was just pretty much ignoring everybody other than herself. And she didn't reciprocate his, I don't know, promptings, whatever, in order to, um, it's hard to describe it, but you know. So many people are just having out having fun and doing their own thing and they don't have time to pay attention to everybody else. And some of these folks like this Brian Koberger thought that he deserved attention from her. And when she didn't reciprocate that, he lashed out. Well, you know, the Koberger case, of course, is you know very much in the, in the front of the news right now. And his trial is actually going to start later this year. Now, in the case of Koberger, it's really kind of an interesting dynamic because what he's charged with is essentially a mass murder for four people in one incident. But I see tremendous parallels between his evolution, his progression, if you will, to killing throughout his teens and into his 20s, very similar to a serial killer, very similar, in fact, to Dennis Rader, BTK, who I have studied uh, extensively and actually spent a minute, tremendous amount of time corresponding with. They both have degrees in criminal justice. They both had a fixation with stalking and a desire to prey on women. And in both cases, their, their initial killing was in fact a mass murder because BTK killed a family of four. That was his first killing before he became a serial killer. And I've been saying this for a while now, that if Koberger had not been caught, assuming that he is found guilty of this, had he not been caught, I think there's a tremendous likelihood that he would have gone on to become a serial killer. His progression and his evolution is not that of a mass murderer. It is much more that of a serial killer. Interesting. So when you say serial killer, why don't you define that for the audience? Sure, absolutely. So a serial killer is an individual who is killing in multiple unrelated incidents where the victims themselves have no connection. And generally speaking, the perpetrator has no relationship with those victims. That is very different than the profile of the average murder in the United States. As I'm sure you know, Jared, 
in about two thirds, perhaps even 75% of all homicide incidents, there is a relationship between the perpetrator and the victim. That's simply not the case with serial killers. Serial killers are killing individuals because they represent something to them. Either they're attracted to them as a profile, or perhaps they have a mission to rid the world of uh, prostitutes or people of a particular religion or race, for example. So these incidents are not related in anything other than the victim may fit a, a particular profile. And these are happening in multiple incidents where there typically is what is known as an emotional cooling off period in between the killings themselves. And this is the period where the killer will come down from what is often like almost like a narcotic high, an adrenaline high, and cool down and blend back into what often seems outwardly like a normal life. And then what happens, because they're not driven by anger, they're not driven by the normal emotions that, that lead to homicide 99% of the time, they are driven by a hunger, an internal, psychological, visceral, almost a physical hunger to kill. And when that creeps up again, when that be reaches what I like to call a tipping point, they will then kill again. And the period of time that it takes could be weeks, could be months. In very rare cases, like Dennis Rader, bind, torture, kill, even years sometimes in between these incidents. So there isn't like a standard cooling off period? No, no. Oftentimes, over time, will escalate and get shorter. Like in the case of Ted Bundy, it escalated over time. That sometimes happens. But in terms of like, does one size fit all? Is it always two weeks in between murders or one month? No, no, it, it varies. It varies by, uh, by individual. Just like the motivation of each, each serial killer is individualistic or idiosyncratic. I'm often asked by people, is, isn't it always sex? Is, aren't they always driven by sex? And the answer is no. More than 50% of the time, it is not driven by sex. It could be something like a mission. And, and there are, in fact, serial killers that are known as mission killers, where they assign themselves a mission of ridding the world of sex workers or ridding the world of homeless men, for example. They give themselves this mission and they go out and they kill these individuals repeatedly. There are serial killers that are known as visionary serial killers. And David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, is probably the ultimate poster boy of visionary serial killers. He believed that Satan was directing him to, to kill others. And so a visionary serial killer is responding to some perceived higher power or higher authority, could be God, could be Satan, could be the man in the moon, could be Ronald McDonald, telling them to, to kill other people. So there, there, there's actually at least six different categories of serial killers based upon the need that killing serves for them, the, the fantasy-based need that compels them to kill. Ah, wow. It's scary to think that these guys are actually <laughs> walking amongst us. Um, uh, absolutely. So be, before, and you brought up David Berkowitz. I want, I want you to um, expand on that. But before you do... what? Do you think there's an increase in, you know, the sociopath serial killer type that is out there or is it, are we just hearing about it more? Let's use some um, actual numbers. OK, it's estimated that there is about one million adult male psychopaths in the United States, about 600,000 adult female psychopaths. Now, sociopaths are more a little bit more common. 
it's estimated there's about 8 million adult male sociopaths and about 6 million female adult sociopaths. But out of a country of 330 some million people, it's still obviously a fairly small pool. But these individuals can be very troublesome and problematic because they tend to be predatory in nature, although the vast majority of them do not kill. Okay, so that just gives you some uh, some ideas, you know, idea of, of, of the number out there. And it probably would be useful for me to actually give a definition and a kind of a distinction between psychopaths and sociopaths. But I, but I want to first address your question that actually serial killers are dramatically on the, the decline since the 1970s and 1980s. There were during the 1970s, which was probably the heyday. It's, it's when it's when the term serial killer was actually first used by the FBI it was in the 1970s, 1974. Bob Ressler, one of the legendary profilers, used that term for the first time. It's estimated there were about 650 serial killers on the loose in the 1970s, up to 800 or more in the 1980s. Today, currently, the number's way down, maybe a couple of dozen, three dozen so far this decade. So you can see the numbers are way down. And they, the reasons that they're way down has to do with, first and foremost, we can thank the FBI and the much better tools of detection, identification, and apprehension. So we've just gotten much better at identifying and, you know, and actually apprehending these individuals. The public has become much more vigilant than it was in the 1970s. You know, my grandparents, you know, were hitchhiking across the country and thinking it was a great adventure. That stuff doesn't happen anymore. People don't leave their doors unlocked anymore like my grandparents did. And we have actually learned to just be much more vigilant since the 1980s. And I think some of the, I like to call them the OG true crime shows like Dateline and 48 Hours in 2020. In addition to scaring the hell out of us for the last 40 or 50 years, they also taught us to be much more vigilant and things to look out for. So they're educational, you know, in that regard. And then, of course, DNA. DNA has been a game changer. The Golden State Killer, you know, serial killer was apprehended not that long ago based upon actually ancestry DNA. So I think there are a lot of reasons why, you know, the numbers are, have gone down dramatically. So that's good news insofar as serial killers. But that doesn't mean sociopaths and psychopaths have gone away. And they're simply manifesting themselves in different forms. And some of these individuals, unfortunately, who are perpetrating these horrible mass shootings could quite well have these antisocial personality disorders as well. It's a bit of, you know, there, there's this myth that the mass shooters just snap one day. They just snap, go crazy, grab a AK-47 and go shoot up the local shopping mall. That's just not the case. These individuals, it's a progression over time where they escalate and they often hoard guns and, and they prepare and they have extensive planning that goes into this. So they don't just snap. And they also, they're not typically mentally ill from the classic paranoid schizophrenic standpoint. They're troubled individuals, they're angry individuals, they're alienated individuals that, that just have a vendetta towards society, but they may not actually be clinically mentally ill at all, which, by the way, would you like me to sort of break down the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths? Oh, you know what? That was actually the, the next thing I was going to say is because I, I think what you're describing, the guy that snaps is more the sociopath, right? As a, uh, as a... No, not necessarily. Not okay. necessarily. Here's the thing. I get this all the time. All right. Aren't all serial killers, you know, mentally ill? They got to be mentally ill. Look what Jeffrey Dahmer did. He killed and ate 17 people. Isn't he mentally ill? Well, 
from a layman's perspective, sure, you know, they're batshit crazy, right? But <laughs> from, from a, a clinical standpoint, from a clinical standpoint, according to the American Psychiatric Association, the vast majority of serial killers are not mentally ill. They fall into one of two categories, either psychopath or sociopath. And these are not considered mental illnesses. They're antisocial personality disorders for which there is no known cure. These individuals are not having delusions. They're not seeing apparitions. They're not hearing voices, you know, like a truly psychotic individual. It doesn't work that way. The hallmark of a psychopath and a sociopath is the fact that they just have complete disdain toward the needs and the feelings of others, disdain towards society and its rules. They simply operate based upon their own need system, what they want and what they want right now. And they don't care who they step on or hurt to get what they want. And in the case of a psychopath, there's the whole nature versus nurture phenomenon. Are they born that way or are they made? Psychopaths, we believe, are born that way. It's a function of nature, biology. In fact, if you look at the psychopathic brain, it processes information throughout the brain, mapping the brain differently, very differently than a normal human brain. The frontal lobe of a psychopath is almost dead. There's almost no brain activity. And the frontal lobe is so important because that's what controls impulses. That's impulse control. That's what keeps you from when you say, man, I hate my boss. I could kill him. It ke that's what keeps you from doing it. In the case of Ted Bundy, they don't have that. They, they don't have the brakes. They don't have the impulse control. So they, isn't they that where logic Isn't that where logic is processed as well? Well, part of it, yeah. Part of the logic function exists there. But most importantly, in, in terms of what we're talking about and the ability to inhibit someone is this, you know, is this impulse control. And if you look at the frontal lobe of a, of a psychopathic brain, there's, there's just no brain activity. There's, there's nothing there, which is a frightening wow. thing. Now, so a psychopath nature born that way. There is no known cure for a psychopath. They are individuals who simply cannot feel a normal range of emotions or empathize with another living thing. It's simply impossible. The analogy that I use all the time to describe this is imagine an electronic device, say a, a hairdryer, right? If it's plugged in the wall, it works just fine. If you pull the plug out of the wall, you got a useless item in your hand. When it comes to empathy, the ability to connect emotionally with another human being, it's like the psychopath's empathy cord is just pulled out of the wall. They can't do it. It's impossible for them biologically. A sociopath is different. Sociopaths, we believe, are environmentally socialized, hence sociopath, socialized into this predatory behavior. Classic example in the serial killer world is Eileen Warnos. You may be familiar with Eileen Warnos, the, the film Monster. Charlize Theron played her in just in an incredibly powerful fashion. This is a woman who had been tragically brutalized throughout her life, absolutely brutalized. She became conditioned into a retaliatory mode, a predator herself, and began to prey on the very men that she believed had harmed her over time. So she could feel normal range of emotions 
And sociopaths tend to be volatile. Sociopaths tend to have mood swings. They tend to have bouts of anger and rage. You can certainly see that in Eileen Warnos's videos that are available. You can watch them on, on uh, you know, YouTube. You can see the rage and the anger there. She looks unhinged, completely unhinged. That's a sociopath because they actually can feel a range of normal emotions. The problem is if they have, if they're a hairdryer, their plug in the wall is faulty. It just doesn't work right. Sometimes it kind of works, sometimes it doesn't, and that's why they're all over the place. The good news is about sociopaths is they're easier to detect in your environment. It's much easier to see a sociopath around you because they're going to seem off. They're going to seem to have these strange, you know, emotional patterns, whereas a psychopath is just below the radar. Cool cucumber, you know, unflappable. So psychopaths are actually much more dangerous and more difficult to detect. Yeah, I, I can't remember who I was interviewing, but we, we were talking more about the negative effects of like sexual assault, rape, you know, child molestation, that kind of thing. And to me, that's kind of what creates a lot of this sociopathic behavior mm -hmm. that that perpetuates itself for generations in especially in the in the sexually deviant type of areas where if you were molested as a child and abused as a child, then they have a much higher chance of, of becoming abusers themselves. And it, that's it, true. That... That's true. But higher than average. But it's actually having been abused is a poor predictor of becoming a predator yourself. It, but it works the opposite. If you, if you are a predator, better than, if you are a sexual predator, better than 90% of the time, the likelihood is that you yourself had been a victim, okay? But right. projecting the forward, it's less than 10% of the time, if you have been abused, that you will become an abuser. So it's a better predictor of what happened in the past than in the future, if you follow me. Oh, interesting. Does that, so Does that make sense? Kind of. The, yeah. So in, in, other words, in other words, if you yourself are a sexual predator, almost 100% of the time, those individuals have been preyed upon themselves. They have been, mm -hmm. been victims. But just because you have been preyed upon, it's less than 10% of the time that those individuals will go on to become predators themselves. Mm, okay. So, well, I guess that would make sense because there's certainly a lot more kids that are being abused than become abusers. Yes, so, exactly. exactly. So a lot of those kids, even, even though they were abused when they were young, don't necessarily become abusers in the future. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because otherwise, half the We'd population be, would everyone, be everyone would be uh, would, would be a sexual abuser. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, like you said, through the seventies and eighties, you know that it just seems that that period, right in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, and I'm wondering if like the free society of the sixties, you know, between between the drugs and free love and all that kind of stuff, that mindset perpetuated forward and kind of created the environment where people felt more, more open to, to do those kind of things. And the, there wasn't really as much of a prohibited or, or, you know, the chance of a lot of criminals are criminals because they don't believe they'll get caught. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Well, you know, up until I think two things are, uh, that you're suggesting are, are both true. One, and we already talked about this a little bit is up until the 1980s, 
people, you know, they just were rather cavalier about the way that they carried themselves and home security and, and personal security and so forth. It really wasn't until the 1980s that people really started to take that stuff very, very seriously. And as I said, you know, shows like 48 Hours and 2020 and, and Dateline really helped to, and, and America's Most Wanted, certainly America's Most Wanted really put that on the radar that, hey, you know, we really need to be, you know, think about our personal security here. And then the other thing is, you know, especially when it comes to serial killers, we just were very poor at identifying them up until the 1970s. We didn't understand them. In fact, they weren't even called serial killers. They were called mass murderers up until 1974. So they were lumped together with the individuals who perpetrate the one-time horrendous you know, mass shootings. And, and as I said before, the psychology of a serial killer versus the psychology of a mass shooter could not be more different. A serial killer kills out of a hunger to kill and a need to do it again and again and again. The last thing they want to do is get caught, whereas a mass shooter oftentimes plans to die right there at the scene, along with everybody else. But more than 50 percent of the time they do die at that crime scene. Why? Because they're fatalistic individuals who just want to go out in a blaze of glory in their mind and make a statement. I was here and you're going to remember me and I'm going to take 50 people with me. You know, that's that's the you know the yeah. mindset. Very different than a serial killer. Oh, of course. Yeah. I think these mass murder types, you know, whether they're stabbings or shootings, I think it's really interesting that so many of them, well, for example, I, I interviewed a lawyer out of Denver that had studied in depth the Aurora shooter mm, mm -hmm. and the Holmes, theater shooter. James Holmes. Yeah. And he planned that, like you said, the psychopathic and not the sociopathic, the psychopathic, correct? He probably has a different things going on there. It's probably borderline personality disorder. There may even be some real clinical mental illness there going on, but you can definitely see psychopathic tendencies as but well. But he, he wasn't he wasn't listed as as mental illness. He was yeah, listed no, as I know. Pumping, I, so. I, I know. Well, but again, see the thing is the bar, the the bar is so high in order to use an insanity defense. In order to use an insanity defense and in trial. Your lawyer, the burden of proof is now on the defense to show that you did not know that it was wrong to kill at the exact moment that you killed. Not five minutes before, not five minutes after, but at the exact moment you killed. And that bar is almost impossible for anyone to clear, let alone one of these you know, individuals. So that's why these mass shooters, the ones who survive, as well as serial killers, almost never are able to use the insanity defense because it just doesn't apply to them. Yeah. No, I, I'm I'm thinking just from a layman's term, whenever mm -hmm. you see any of these kind of mass killings, you just look at them and you go, yeah, of course this guy's insane. Because, you know, everybody looks at life through their own lenses and through their own rosy glasses. And 99.9% .9 of people, I think, they look at these kind of incidences, you know, the Idaho shooting, the, the theater shooting, it doesn't matter, Ted Bundy. You look at him, you're like, that dude was just crazy. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, right. absolutely. I mean, that's what I get that all the time. And, yeah. and that's why, you know, as a social scientist, I try to say and try, you know, I, I empathize with the audience and say, yes, absolutely. As, as, a per, as a human being, I understand what you're saying. But the reason that it doesn't apply in the courtroom or in the mental institution is the following, because they just don't they, they don't fit the definition of either clinical or legal insanity. And oh, no. uh, they, they they know it's wrong. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Whether, they just don't care. They, they yeah. just don't care. Yeah, they either Which don't the care. Or they... of a psychopath. A psychopath. Right. Yeah, I know. You know, 
Well, I mean, in yeah. fact, Dennis Rader, BTK, said this to me. He says, he says, I know you think it's wrong. I, you know, I know that, but I don't care. You know, yeah. I, I need to do it. In fact, he, he even turns the tables. Dennis Rader turns the tables and goes so far as to say, God created me as the perfect predator. Why wouldn't I do this? You know, why wouldn't I do this? And how dare you condemn me for, for doing God's good work? He made me the perfect predator. I mean, that's how crazy, you know, he, he turns it around, turns the table on us and say, how dare you condemn me? Oh, yeah. I, I'm actually, you should be like me. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Well, you know, in many ways, you're you're kind of describing the the typical politician. You know, like, <laughs> well, you know, uh... I, I I have a colleague of mine. His name is Kevin Dutton, and he wrote an incredible book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. And he studies exclusively, exclusively highly functioning, successful psychopaths in in the realm of areas like brain surgery, politicians lawyers, corporate CEOs, you know, if you think about it, there are certain fields where being cold blooded and indifferent to the feelings of others is actually a wonderful trait to have if you want to re, you know, if you want the ultimate success, because you don't care who you step on along the way, you know, and, and yeah. so, so it's not surprising when you really think about it, why you could have psychopaths in the very bastions of power and influence in, in the world. Well, I, and I've talked to multiple people about this too, is that they, the psychopath is also in, in many cases, an extreme narcissist. Oftentimes there's a big correlation there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, the fact that they almost worship themselves and the only thing that's really important is themselves and how they feel and, and they have no remorse over what has to happen in order for them to achieve whatever their success level is, you know, fortunately, most of those people aren't cold-blooded killers, but at the same time, they're very calculating. They're very predatory. Predatory, yeah. And and frankly, they just don't care who they hurt in order to achieve their goals. And that's an interesting. I definitely don't want to get into politics, but yeah, um, but you you can see it. I mean, it it you know that's why my my friend's work is so fascinating. You know, we he and I chat right. all the time about this. You know, I'm studying them in the you know the criminal violent killer world, and he's studying them in the boardroom. You know, the ones who are you know are highly successful. So we have some very right. interesting conversations about that. Um, but it is you know it is true. You know, it it, it is absolutely true. Which is why the the most psychopathic and narcissistic of the serial killers, like the Ted Bundys, the John Wayne Gacy's, the Green River Killers, Gary Ridgway, are so prolific because nothing bothers them. Nothing bothers yeah. them at all. They're not afraid. They're not deterred in any way. BTK, for example, told me the story when he went into the house to kill his first victim, which was the Otero family in 1974. He had been targeting the daughter, the 11-year-old girl, Josephine, and also watching her mother. But he miscalculated. And when he went into the house, four members of the family were actually there. Father, mother, little Josephine, and a, and a little brother. Four members of a seven-person family. But being the, the psychopath and narcissist that he is, he just said, I didn't get all dressed up for nothing this morning. I'm ready. I am just going to adapt to the environment. And what he did is he, he had a gun with him and he very calmly said, don't worry. I'm simply here to rob you. You don't need to worry about anything. I'm just going to tie you up. But if you cooperate with me, everything will be fine. Well, they did cooperate with him. 
And once he had them completely under his control, he became bind, torture, kill for the first time and did the most insidious, horrible things to each one of them that he had fantasized about in advance. So he was just cool, calm, and collected. No problem. I get four people, I can deal with it. So easily adaptable. Yes, exactly. And that's, and no fear. Absolutely no fear. You know, another uh-huh. one, another one that, that is almost mind boggling. And he's, people ask me all the time, who is the most disturbing serial killer of all, or the one that you just find the most, you know, incredible. And the, the one that always comes to my mind is Richard Ramirez, the night stalker in Los Angeles. And the reason that I say Richard Ramirez is because he fits into a category of serial killer known as a thrill killer. He was an individual who killed simply out of the excitement, not necessarily sexual excitement, but out of the adrenaline rush to kill. It was almost like he fashioned himself a big game hunter. He was, you know, he was killing people and they were trophies uh, for him. Now, what he did that made him unique, even among thrill killers, is this. And the reason he was called the Night Stalker, he would go into his neighborhood in suburban Los Angeles back in the 1980s. He'd find in a completely dark neighborhood, you know, two o'clock in the morning, a house with an open window, not knowing who or what was inside. His M.O., he would just climb in the window and kill whoever and whatever he found inside. He didn't know if there was a family of Doberman pinchers in there and people with, you know, armed with AK-47s. That was the thrill for him. That's incredible. So above and beyond the mindset of a psychopath to kill, he had to up the ante and, and surprise himself, not knowing what he was going to get into. It's absolutely incredible. I actually, you know, people, when they, when I say this at first blush, they, they say, what are you talking about? I, I say, it's like, it's, it's a little bit like the movie Forrest Gump. And, and what I mean by that is, do you remember if you saw the movie, Forrest Gump's mother said to little Forrest, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Well, for Richard Ramirez, every window in L.A. was like a box of chocolates. He never knew what he was going to get. And that was the excitement for him. That's just taking it to another level almost. Yeah. Wow. So I just interviewed a guy named Jimmy Toro, and his story is absolutely fascinating. The interesting thing about him, among other things, is he, as a four-year-old, was a victim. And his father and a bunch of his friends were these status that would torture him and his sister and even to the point of putting him in a coffin with a with a dead body that had been basically gutted and burying him and he could he said he as a four-year-old he could hear them throwing dirt on top of him so he literally did not know that he was ever going to make it out alive and so just before he had literally exhausted himself to death you know, trying to fight and get out of that coffin, they brought him up. And he said the sickest part about it was here are these adults who, especially his father, that is the one figure that should be protecting him, but adults in general should be protecting him as a child. And yet they were so sadistic that they were actually sexually aroused by the, the fact that they were torturing this poor little kid. Mm. And Horrible. to me, that level of psychotic behavior is one of those where you just look at them and you're like, okay, that's one of those, those men. And and it's it, the vast majority of them are men, correct? The, these kind of deviants that will go that far. 
Well, about 85% of all serial killers are male. I'm interested. I, I think it's interesting that it's 15% female. That's Yeah, which um, is actually, it's, it's interesting because about 10% of all murderers are female, but 15% of female killer, killers are, are uh, serial killers are female, which kind of suggests in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek, but women don't kill that often, but when they do, they kill a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A, w- a woman scorned, you know, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Once, once they uh, get pushed once over they the kill, they're, they're good at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, women are good at a lot of things and they, I, I <laughs> Yeah, taking care but, of, but still, uh, it's clearly the minority. Clear, clearly, clearly yeah, the minority. Yeah. Well, and it's, I, I, I think part of that is physical. Part of that is, you know, like you said, impulse. Men suffer much more from from out of control impulse than than women do. To me, though, back to Jimmy Toro, the level of psychotics that I think that are out there that are doing just sick things that we never hear about, I, I think is is actually a lot higher than what most people what most people would think it is. So, Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I believe that. I mean, what, you know, what goes on behind closed doors is, you know, frequently just, you know, never comes to light. Um, Mm -hmm. And only the most probably, you know, only the most horrific cases are the ones that we actually, you know, hear about, but there's terrible things happening all the time, unfortunately. Uh, What do you think is the cause of that? To me, it's, I think there's, there's a basic level of human behavior that I, I think is instilled in all of us, you know, love and compassion, the ability to empathize, those kind mm-hmm. of things. I, I think those are all God-given natures and, and most people are born with them. But what is it about, I don't, I don't know if it's social, where we're kind of uh, deviating further and further away from the human nature that is on the good side. I, are, are we, is it, is it more just we're hearing about it more? Or is it actually increasing? Well, as I said earlier, the, in, in, in the case of serial killers, they're actually dramatically on the decline. And I don't think that the, the, that the psychopathic personality or the sociopathic personality has diminished in any way in numbers. I think it's a combination of, A, we are getting better again at detecting them early on and apprehending them through things like DNA and profiling, etc. But they're also manifesting themselves in different ways. Because again, remember, it's only a tiny sliver of psychopaths and sociopaths who become predatory killers, serial killers, or violent in general. Most psychopaths are not violent. They're predatory, as we've already talked about, and even, you know, joked about a little bit, you know, being successful in in whether it's banking or lawyers or, or, or whatever, they're predatory in nature to the extent that they don't mind stepping on other people, but that doesn't necessarily make them, you know, serial killers. Right. Not all serial killers are psychopaths. Not all psychopaths are serial killers. There is a correlation there, but it, it's actually, it's a small percentage of the individuals. And in, in terms of your question of environment, you know, nature versus nurture, I've always believed it's a combination of the two. It's a, a mm-hmm. and, and, and again, why, why are we seeing an uptick? Certainly, I mean, the one thing that we can certainly document is an uptick in these horrific mass public shootings over the last 10 years. And that I firmly believe is due to the socio-cultural political environment that we live in right now, where society is almost being torn apart. I mean, people are afraid. 
people no longer believe in the American dream. They no longer think that their children's lives will be better than their, their own. People are just afraid and alienated. And in that kind of a, an arena, if in that kind of a social context, as I said, very bad things are going to happen. They're bound to happen. Yeah. There's a fair number of people that I've talked to that, including law enforcement, that think that when it, when they look back as to motive and things like when once they actually catch the person, that the dehumanization of, especially of social media, is a major factor. And the mm -hmm. fact that we can, I don't know if you know Dr. Lee Meller. I know the name. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. I've interviewed him a couple of times on the, for the show as well and fascinating discussion. But one of the last ones that we had was what he called the lockdown before the lockdown. And what he meant by that is social media and our ability to interact with the world in a, it, it's an artificial way, but in many times, in many people's minds, when you are interacting with someone on social media, it's equivalent in their minds to being face to face and mm -hmm. being person to person. And, mm -hmm. you know, like you and I, the way we're talking right now, granted the way we're, the reason we're doing it is because uh, we're what, 600 miles apart, but you know, technology has allowed us to be able to do this. But at, at the same time, if this is the only way that I ever interacted with anybody, I mean, it's better than just staring at a screen because, you know, there's an actual interaction and it's causing all sorts of things to, to happen. You know, my, my brain is constantly going with everything you're, you're talking about. It's just like, holy crap, man, how many uh, psychopaths do I have living next to me? But, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, the social media and everything, and he's talking pre-COVID, you know, social media, especially, but, but technology in general has allowed us to be conditioned to the point that when the lockdowns happened, we just accepted it. And, and in his mind, he was thinking that if, if we hadn't been conditioned because of social media and in all the ways that it has kind of locked us down in physically, we're locked down, but mentally we weren't. Uh, at least in, in a lot of people's minds, but we would have never accepted the conditions. And frankly, I don't think we ever should have accepted those conditions of the, the COVID lockdown. But mm -hmm. it's just one of those that how else are we, are we conditioning ourselves in a negative way that is kind of forcing out a lot of this uh, psychological behavior or psychotic behavior well, that you know, will manifest it's, it's, itself in other ways in the future? What you're saying is, is very interesting, and I definitely see the, uh, the merit, the logic of it. The thing about social media is it's intimate, and yet there are walls at the same time. So yes, we can sit here, we can communicate, we can share, but at the same time, there is no physical contact. And I think it permits us to be very cruel and cold and indifferent to others in a way that we would never do in person. You know, people right. people say and do things on social media that to other individuals that I don't think they would ever do in person. So there is that lack of intimacy there that enables us just to be very callous and very cold and hurtful to other people. So I definitely see that. I definitely see that as one of the negatives of, of social media. Well, isn't that why uh, Mike Tyson basically said far too many of you have been conditioned to say things and not get punched in the face? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. You, 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 you would say things uh, here in social media in the, in the safety and security of your home on the internet that you would never right. say to Mike Tyson if he was standing in front of you. Right. Absolutely true. 
Oh, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think all of us have, have, we've had people say things about us or to us, you know, quote, quote, to us that they would never say face to face. And, and, you know, everybody's a keyboard warrior when they're, when they're safely behind their computer and at home and physically a safe distance. But, you know, to me that it's another, it's almost like the eighties where you have less chance of getting caught by doing deviant behavior and to, uh, yeah, it, to me, it's not good. I mean, understanding the things that you can do on social media, that is kind of so many people now have this mindset. I don't want to get totally, you know, down on social media. Social media mm-hmm. is fantastic. I mean, I've been able to reconnect with all sorts of people that, and connect with people all over the world that I would have never, never been able to meet. I know you included, I, mm-hmm. I, I noticed we're, we're connected on LinkedIn and, and I just followed you on Twitter and, and, I, and I'm following your, your blog now and just everything I've read about is just fascinating. And, and I Thank just, you. I, you know, being in the true crime space, I, I love this stuff and, you know, every area of it to me is fascinating and just solving crime in general. And, and that's really the purpose of my show is to kind of help educate people on every aspect of investigation from when the officer responds to a, 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 a 911 call all the way to figuring out why people do things, which is kind of where your expertise is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> just picking up on what you're saying about, uh, you know, about social media. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer in no technology is inherently bad or, you know, or for that matter, good in, in and of itself. It's, you know, it's benign. It's, it's technology. It's what you do with it, you know. And, you know, in the 1950s, they almost put comic books out of business because they thought that they was corrupting the mind of children and making them join gangs and, and Batman and Robin were gay and it was going to destroy the world, you know, things, things like that, you know. So, you know, it's uh, media and technology are not living things. They are neither good nor bad. It's what we as humans do with them. And something like social media, for all of its wonderful attributes and benefits that, that it's created for us, clearly, when it's misused, has a, uh, a downside to it. So, um, you know, that's just that's the nature of the human condition and what we, you know, how we operate as, as, as people. And we need to be much more sensitive, empathetic. We've talked a lot about empathy today. We need to be much more empathetic and consider the ramifications of what we do and how it's going to affect other people. Oh, absolutely. Hey, before we uh, wrap it up, let's, um, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about your latest research with Berkowitz is his name. David, David Berkowitz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, for my book, Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers, he was one of the key people that I interviewed for the book. And the reason that I, I, I extensively interviewed him and I also did an extensive amount of research on Dennis Rader, BTK. So my book is just chock full of anecdotes and stories about these individuals. You know, one of the things that's so fascinating about David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, is at one level, he almost personifies evil in our society. I mean, he, he held New York City in his hand in a, in a grip of terror in the summer of 1977. It became known as the Summer of Sam. In fact, Spike Lee made a, a movie about it. And he has just gone down as, you know, as this legendary evil you know, in, individual to this very day. If you have, you know, if you talk to people of the right age who were alive at that time, they still get shudders when, you know, when you talk about the, the son of Sam. 
But interestingly, he and you can, you know, this files under truth is stranger than fiction. He has remorphed himself now or he has reinvented himself. He has now calls himself the son of hope. He has experienced behind bars what he uh, calls a Christian rebirth. And he has written a book about his adventures as the son of hope. And he's become actually a em, embraced and a darling of the evangelical Christian community who see him as a source of hope and redemption. He has a, a website now that's operated by evangelical Christians that reaches millions of people around the world. And I had the opportunity to spend a day with him at Sullivan Correctional Facility a few years ago. And I spent an afternoon with this son of Hope, formerly son of, son of Sam. And it was an incredible, absolutely incredible experience because in many ways, I felt like I was with someone who was not this frightening, diabolical character like we remember from photographs and so forth. He has transformed into something that looks almost like a backyard gnome. He's, he's a short guy with a bald head and big rosy cheeks and a smile and, and sparkling eyes. And he came running into the cafeteria to meet me, put me in a big hug, and then said, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. And I, my, my mind was spinning as this entire experience was taking place. And over the next several hours, he took me on this odyssey, emotional odyssey, where he described his remorse and his contrition and for all the things that he had done and his desire to, you know, to do good. And it, it actually took me back because who am I to say, you know, I have a PhD, but it's not in Christian rebirth, you know, and transformation. I don't have the tools to evaluate that. And here's this guy sitting in front of me that now apparently millions of people around the world find as a source of inspiration and hope. So who am I to say, you know, who, who am I to say? Yeah. So it was rather one of the rather interesting, most interesting experiences of my life. And, you know, I walked away, you know, and I, and I tried to, to this day have an open mind, you know, is it, is it possible that he has found behind bars what he had always been looking for, and that is his purpose in his life and to do something for a higher authority. Once it was Satan, now it's God. Maybe it's true. Or the cynic in me says, maybe he's entirely full of shit. Maybe he's making this up. You know, maybe, maybe it's all just uh, BS. I suspect reality is somewhere in the middle. You know, oh, I believe that he believes it. You know, yeah. and if millions of people, if millions of people are actually claiming that they're getting a source of peace, hope and inspiration from this, let him do it. He's going to be in prison yeah. for the rest of his life. He's not going anywhere. You know, let him do it. So I don't know. I left I left there with, I guess, an open mind. And if Son of Hope is doing good things, let him do it as long as he remains behind bars. Let him, you know, let him continue. Yeah, that's interesting. Well. I can personally attest that God can change lives and, mm -hmm. you know, finding a higher purpose than, than just mankind and, you know, being physically on this earth. To me, that's, that's where a lot of the hope that people lose in society is happening. There's, I've, I've seen a number of graphs that it shows the decline in church attendance and religious affiliation and those kind of things. And the increase in, crime and even just just mean acts, you know, where people are just less cordial and less social. You know, they 
there, there's a direct relation between those two. And I, I, I have to agree with you. I, I believe that we are as, as humans are spiritual individuals by our spiritual entities by nature looking for something to believe in. And it can go to the good, you know, it can go to the light or, or it can go to the darkness. So that's why I say I, I left there with an, with an open mind because Berkowitz was once led into the darkness and he said I was a very evil man. And he says behind bars, he's been led in, into the light. So, you know, acts, actions speak louder than words. And if he truly is having this effect on people and it's causing comfort and hope for people, that's why I say, you know, let him continue to do it. You know, um, oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. so um, I find it really interesting. And, and as, as you bring this up, you know, there, there's a lot of people in society today that I think and frankly, some of the scientists especially like gain of function research, things like that. It's to me, it's almost psychotic behavior because they are putting themselves in the place of a higher power and doing things that in my mind, God never intended. And, you know, whether, whether people in the audience believe in God or believe in a higher power, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter as much as if you look at, and again, I, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, totally versed in this, but I see a relationship between the number of people that are pushing away from, from a higher being and a higher purpose and looking more inward as, and people, that, that it seems that the more they study and the higher in advanced degrees they get, the more narrow their focus becomes on how they, uh, how they view life. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm explaining myself well, but no, you, you uh, are. And I mean, and, and again, let's let's put it in something tangible. I believe that the uptick that we've seen, the, the considerable uptick in mass public shootings is a manifestation of what you're describing. These are individuals who have lost all belief in anything. They're completely alienated from life, from the world and from themselves. And as a result, what are they doing? They're taking themselves out and they're taking as many other people out with them. So these are people who literally, by definition, have lost all belief. So I, I think yeah. that right you know, there is a very tangible example of exactly what you're describing. And where does that come from again? It comes from the environment, the, the social, political, cultural context that we live in right now. Yeah, absolutely well said. That's it's one of those things that I, I think the further people push away a higher being and a higher purpose, and it, in my opinion, that's God, and it, which, which gives this life here on this earth purpose to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're here more than just to have this earthly experience. And the more people do that, the more they're, they are willing to do things that are on the fringes and which, which may be something like, uh, you know, performing surgeries that are just insane to doing research that's insane to, you know, deciding that life just isn't worth living anymore. And which is another really big topic of the, the way people, especially men, especially young men are being almost ignored by, especially by the opposite sex. And it seems that I don't know what the stat is, though, but it's uh, they say that like 80 percent of the young men that go into a bar never interact with 
anyone from the, uh, any female, when they go into a bar, they're completely ignored. And so mm. this 80% is falling completely victim to the 20% that are getting all the attention. And as you know, most men, they'll crawl over crushed glass to uh, get the attention of the fairer sex. And when they're completely ignored, you know, then a lot of times they'll just look at it and they'll it, eventually something will snap and they'll say, it's not worth being here. I'm going to do something to get attention. And if that requires me going out and shooting a bunch of people and, you know, going into a nightclub and, and shooting it up in order to get somebody's attention. And like you said, make a name for themselves that will be known throughout society, then that's what they do. And part of it is, is environmentally, environmentally driven. Some of it's wired into them, but I think just the way this society is kind of moving toward almost promoting narcissism and promoting, again, that, that divide, it's a dangerous combination. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought there's, yes, I think that, uh, there's so much happening in the in the sociological world and through a sociological lens that helps to explain what's happening, which is, by, by the way, I'm a criminologist, but my PhD is in sociology with a concentration in criminology. So I tend to look at things at a macro level as opposed to the sort of the idiosyncratic pathological level of one individual, I look at what's happening in society in general, and then try to understand the patterns that emerge from that. And so as we look at a lot of this pathological individual acts, when you look at the environment itself, the social context, you can say, well, of course, this is going to happen. Look, you, you know, look at the environment. Of course, you're going to have these individual pathological acts. How could you not given the social context that we live in? Yeah. So last question for you, in the context of what we've been talking about, when you think about your specialty and, and the areas that you've focused on, you know, especially serial killings, is the fatuation, the infatuation with true crime, with serial killings in general, is that feeding the beast? Is it promoting more of it? Or do you think that's a factor? You know, this could be a topic for an entire discussion in itself. The, the, the fascination with true crime generally and serial killers specifically is a multifaceted thing. And there's a bit of it that's like looking into the abyss or the phenomenon of rubber necking on the road. You know, there's an accident. I got to look at it. You know, it's so compelling. I've got to look at it. Um, there, there's some of that that's, that's, that's going on with, you know, particularly serial killers. It's just so over the top and inconceivable that it draws my attention. But there, there's also a cathartic, I think, a cathartic effect of it, particularly for women. And as you and I have discussed, interestingly, and I don't know if the audience knows this, but about 80% of the true crime audience watching the TV shows on Oxygen, Investigation, Discovery, and A&E, as well as listening to podcasts, it's women, 80% women. And I think a lot of the attraction for women comes out of empathy, once again. Empathy to the extent that they identify with the victims in these stories because more often than not, they're other women, but then also the empathy and the need to understand the perpetrator who typically is male and a desire to shield themselves, to protect themselves, to be safe from that predator. I've had so many women tell me their greatest fear is being abducted, apprehended, attacked by the unknown predator. Tremendous fear for women. 
So why do they watch these shows? Is they want to learn how to protect themselves. They want to be safe. They identify with the women in these stories. And if you notice the typical template for these true crime shows, 48 hours, as well as the shows on investigation, discovery, et cetera, it starts with a terrible crime, an abduction of a murder, almost always a woman. Then for the next 50 minutes, they take you on this terrifying odyssey trying to find the perpetrator. And then in the last 10 minutes, they identify the individual, they're apprehended, they go to prison, truth and justice prevails. So the female audience can say, oh, oh my God, it's, we're safe. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're safe again. And the programmers of these shows know that. They know that. And they, they have told me, because I've been on a lot of these shows, and they tell me our desire and our goal is to make our female audience feel safe by the end of the hour. And so these shows serve that purpose. They scare the hell out of the audience, but then you always feel safe by, you know, by the time it, it's over. And so the empathy aspect of it, I think, is particularly powerful for women. Who wants to date or marry the next Ted Bundy, right? Nobody does, right? You know, right. for that matter, who wants to give birth to the next Ted Bundy? Nobody does, right? <laughs> so women, women are looking to this to educate themselves and also serve for a catharsis to an outlet for their fears. You know, I can I can experience the fear and then I can let it go. And as I mentioned to you, Jared, I just got off the road. I had a one-man show called The Psychology of Serial Killers and Why They Captivate Us that I took around the country, 14 major cities over a 20-night odyssey. And we were in cities like Dallas and Houston and Philadelphia and Chicago. Everywhere I went, the audience was 80% female and it was 80% women. It was almost like girls' night out. And they were there to engage and to exercise these emotions together. It was like a sisterhood. It was like a, a collective, a, a sisterhood. And it was just a fascinating experience to look at and, and to observe the true crime audience real time and also to get direct feedback on a lot of my ideas and concepts that I've been writing about for a long time. It was just an amazing experience. But 80% women everywhere I went. Wow. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Like you said, that's an entire another show there to delve into that one. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, to answer your question, is it good or is it bad? I think it's just, it's a reflection of the times. You know, it's a reflection of what we have. True crime has always been out there. It's taken different forms. My grandfather was a true crime fan, but he was reading those pulp magazines, you know, back in the 1940s, mm. you know, 1950s. It's now high production value on the biggest networks, the biggest screens, the biggest platforms in the world. So it's sort of come out of the shadows. It's not the, you know, seamy thing that it once was. And it's much more acceptable to say now that I'm a true crime fan, that I like yeah. this stuff. So I think it, it serves actually an educational and a cathartic value. It's interesting, as you were describing that, you know, that, that whole cycle that the TV shows do. It's like what popped into my head was Jaws. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you think about, you know, Jaws, that, that's, I, I don't know how many people were comfortable with going into the ocean prior to that movie, but that had such a psychological effect on people that it, there's a it, lot of people like, especially me. I mean, I grew up in the mountains of Idaho. It's like, I'm not going to the beach. Are you crazy? That's and right. Yet, you know, but at the end, they killed the shark and, you know, he went down and uh, after getting blown up, but there's always the factor that there's another one out there. Mm -hmm. And so there's like an endless number of shows that they could create and all and tap into that fear. 
And you would hope that there's more killer sharks out there than there are killer people, but I don't think so. Well, it's very apropos maybe that we end end on this because I actually talk about this in my show and I've used this reference many times, is that I believe that a serial killer like Jeffrey Dahmer is actually in many ways very much like a great white shark and they share at least three things in common. They are both rare, exotic, and deadly. In addition, the odds of being killed by either a serial killer or a great white shark are very similar. And that is, and I've done the math, it's about 150 million to one. Those are the odds of being killed by either a serial killer or a great white shark. In fact, it's more likely that you will die as a result of a soft drink vending machine falling on top of you and crushing you (laughs) than to be killed by a serial killer or a great white shark. (laughs) All right. Well, yeah, that's that's a great point to add on or to uh, end on because, you know, serial killers, especially and. I would include mass shootings and everything else in there. It's, you know, there's so many stats that when you actually get into them, like, for example, the the odds of you getting killed by a police officer being if you are unarmed and non-aggressive toward a police officer, you have a better chance of getting of dying from a bee or a, a wasp sting than dying from a from a police officer. So, yeah, it's you put it. It's the imagery, you know, it's the horrific Mm -hmm. imagery that we see that becomes so indelible. What is more horrific than Jeffrey Dahmer eating people? What is more horrific than a great white shark with these giant jaws? It's the imagery. This is the stuff that sticks with us. And like you say, you know, the mind is does doesn't do it logically it's like well there's more of them out there i know there's more of them out there and i'm going to be the next victim you know (laughs) no 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 the the odds are 150 million other people will be before you but you know right half of america half of america would have to get eaten by a great white shark before (laughs) the chances are you will you will be exactly exactly that's right that's right yeah there's there's a lot of like you said yeah the, the chance you getting struck by lightning dying in a car crash, those kind of things are so much more fatal. So much more likely. I mean, it's, I hate, you know, yeah. the odds of, of dying in a fatal car crash are, are like one in 50,000. Well, that's way more likely than one in 150 million. Oh, yeah. There, there's play the odds, folks. Play yeah, the odds. So, exactly. Hopefully we've done a little public service here today, Jared, and, and alleviated <laughs> some fears. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, Scott, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. But for those of you out there that are listening or or watching us on YouTube, again, please subscribe, please watch more episodes, share it with your friends, but definitely go and visit Dr. Scott Bond. He has all sorts of ways to connect with him and to hear his stories. He's on LinkedIn. He's got a website. DocBond.com. Yep. Also, The Killing Hour with Doc Bond is my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I apologize not mentioning your podcast. Say that podcast again. The Killing Hour with Doc Bond. And it's available on you know all the major platforms. And, and you uh, you release episodes every Wednesday, if I if I yeah. read that. Yeah, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus while I was traveling. But yeah, there's a whole well, shame bank. on you. What are you doing? <laughs> there's a whole Get bank work, of Scott. episodes there, whole <laughs> bank of episodes on there about in depth in particular, David Berkowitz and Dennis Rader and my adventures with those two guys, if you will. So yeah, there's lots of episodes to listen to. Oh, that's fantastic. And I definitely recommend these two books just sound so interesting. Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murders, 
And this one also, mass deception, moral panic, and the U.S. war on Iraq. That whole, boy, there's all sorts of things that um, create, you know, I, I think that's that exact same thing is happening right now with Ukraine. You know, yeah, well, the, you, know, this, we, um, you know, again, we didn't really get into this, but I have a background in the media. I actually spent 22 years of my career, my, uh, the first years of my professional life in the media world. So I tend to look at use the media lens and, and how that affects things, you know, whether it's creating boogeymen out of serial killers or the, you know, rationale for war or, you know, whatever. The media is a powerful, you know, powerful tool. Back to technology again. It's a, you know, it's yeah. media is not, neither good or bad, it, but it can be used for either good or bad purposes. Oh, but the people that are pushing it behind, you know, pushing the fear behind, especially news and the stuff like that is just. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. You know, I, yeah. I couldn't agree with I, you more. I think they, they, they would be classic psychotics. <laughs> well, unfortunately, there's an old journalistic term that goes, if it bleeds, it leads. And the mm -hmm. more sensationalized it is, the more people will tune in. And ultimately, it's a business. It's about selling advertising. And the more eyeballs you have on the screen or ears listening in, the more advertising revenue you're going to get. You know, so it's a cold, it's an amoral business. I, w I don't want to say necessarily immoral, but it's at least an, you know, an amoral sort of thing. So, uh, but oh, yeah, sure. media, media is an important consideration in all of this, without a doubt. Well, let's have you back on again and we can we can delve into that side of it, because, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think we've explored a little bit about the serial killer side, but, you know, the mass deception to me is another just fascinating topic that I'd love to pick your brain on. So super. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Scott Bond. Scott, I definitely appreciate you coming on. Boy, it's just fascinating discussion. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jared. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, of course. Okay, we will talk at you later then. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.